like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 20, in case anybody was curious about what book we were in. <laughs> and for the last few chapters we have been talking, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it means to be about true greatness, what it means to be great in his kingdom. And so Matthew brings us now here to the end of Matthew chapter 20, and it's sort of an end to this entire section of the gospel, and he's going to be moving us into a new section. And so the story we look at today is just a simple story. It's easy to understand, um, no great hidden message, it's not unusual for it to happen in the life of Jesus. Stories like this could have been written a thousand times. So why this story? Uh, why is it here? Just as Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, and he's been proclaiming that, why stop in the middle of this procession to heal two men? And I think there's a lot of reasons, but if you look in verse 34, uh, there's a word, compassion. Or it might be, say, I take pity on, or felt for, I mean, whatever your version says. But it's basically, he took compassion. And so people who were nothing but an irritation to others, or an irritation or a distraction to the crowd, were a cause for deep pain and compassion and empathy to Jesus. While the world wanted to silence these people, Jesus wanted to hear what they had to say. While the world wanted to make sure they didn't get in the way, Jesus wanted to stand with them. While the, while the world wanted to be sure that they didn't interrupt anything important by sharing what their needs were, Jesus wanted them to know that what their needs were is what was important. And so you have this story. And it's a demonstration of the heart of God, which is the heart of compassion. So when we talk about being great in the kingdom, if we don't have a heart of compassion, we're missing it. We're missing it significantly. So turn to Matthew chapter 20, starting verse 29. And if you have your own Bibles, I'd encourage you to read in your Bibles. If you have your iPhone or your Android or whatever, uh, and if you don't have any of those things, we have sermon notes. And the sermon notes are at the back table. Um, so, but go ahead and just read Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Once again, this passage is just showing us the greatness and the compassion of Jesus Christ. And it's a picture of what true kingdom greatness is. As the disciples are jockeying for position over here, Jesus is ministering compassion to outcasts over here. And so when you look at the story, Jericho was about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. 
It was a prosperous city uh, in Jesus' day. And someday, in some ways, it would be like a resort town. If you wanted to get away, you know, let's, let's go over to Jericho. Because of that, it was a great place for beggars. Because what better place to beg than in a prosperous city where it's sort of resort and people are feeling a little bit more generous. And so there was just a lot of beggars there. There would be somebody to show you mercy on the roadside. And as Jesus is passing through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem, he's encountered by two blind men. Again, there's this great crowd of people that are following Jesus. And the blind men somehow are able to perceive that Jesus was coming or hear that Jesus was coming. And yet also not only perceive or hear, but they must have known something about who this Jesus is. So verse 30 says, Behold. And that is a, a term of explanation. And I think the exclamation here is not because the men were blind. I said, Behold, blind men. You know, no, that wasn't uncommon. Um, probably the same two blind men had been there for a while. They had probably been sitting on the side of the road for a long time. They had seen these crowds go by all the time. People have seen them. So it's not the fact that they're there. It's what they say that makes a difference. They cry out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. They're calling him. They can't see him. They're blind to him physically, but they can see spiritually because they call him by his messianic name here is the lord here is the son of david um and that is what is making a difference um two beggars mark says who were begging luke says sitting by the wayside matthew says screaming out their messianic title where did these guys get it when did they become the theologians where did they get their information and faith? That's what the behold is about. That they're surprised that they're able to get, catch this. Uh, now, if you take a look in the scripture, or you read the history, blindness was rampant in uh, the New Testament times uh, because of illness, because of all kinds of things. So it wasn't uncommon to see a blind person. Um, but even more common than the physical blindness that Jesus was going to heal was the spiritual blindness that was there. Um, and metaphorically, the Gospels and the Epistles constantly talk about blindness, not from a physical perspective, but from a spiritual perspective. So think of this not only from the, these blind men being physically blind, but how they represent a whole people group that are spiritually blind. Back in the third chapter of Matthew, it says that men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, their minds were blinded. And you see it all over in the New Testament where it talks about 
this spiritual blindness where people cannot see the truth of who Jesus is. Also, it's into the darkness of man's spiritual blindness that Jesus came. In Luke 4.18, he said he had come to give sight to the blind. Who's the blind? And he said in John 8, I am the light that, that lights the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So again, he came to give spiritual sight to those who are blinded. Now, notice what these guys didn't say. They come out immediately and say, have mercy on us. They didn't say, hey, God gave us a dirty deal. It was not my fault that I'm blind. It's, it, it's my parents. It's, it's the, the, where I live. It's everything that's going on around me that has caused me to be blind. So God just, you know, God did this. And to become, instead of becoming angry at God, and to become a victim of what was going on in their life, they just said, have mercy. Have mercy on us. Their sense of humility in that cry is a cry out with an intense desire to be healed. But they make no demands. They make no claims on how or why or what God should do. Now, how many times are we able to just have that kind of a simple prayer? You know, God's God, and I just need his mercy. I need his understanding. I just need to recognize. Instead of moving into all the reasons why life is unfair and how I've gotten a bad deal, and now it's time for God to fix, you know, all of this for me. And they are persistent. They refuse to be bullied into the silence by the crowd. Verse 31, the multitudes rebuked them that they should hold their peace, and they screamed even louder. You know, this group is saying, be quiet, and they go, no, we're not going to be quiet. We're going to scream even louder. God, have mercy on me. And I think the world is always trying to silence the voice of Christ, the movement of Christ. And when people call out for Christ, there's a world that's out there that's trying to silence that. But these guys were not going to be silenced. They were going to persevere until they were able to have a conversation with Christ. And again, these beggars are a picture of us. We may not see it. We may not feel like it. Um, but if we don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are blind beggars. Um, for without Christ, we are sightless. And by a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't mean that one day somebody just said, you know, I, well, yeah, I gave my life to Christ when I was four. I'm talking about a relationship that claims that we know who he claims to be. We believe who he claims to be. We have embraced him and are embracing his word and his claims about himself. We're actively trusting him with every area of our lives and to, for forgiveness from our sins. We're growing in our love for him and our love for others. 
a self-denying love that says it's not about me, it's about what's going on in other people's lives. And that we're able to share that kind of love. And there's a lot of people that are sitting in churches all over the country that are just spiritually blind because they don't understand that deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. A person who doesn't recognize his need for Christ sort of reminds me of a husband who doesn't realize his marriage is failing. His wife can go to him on a dozen, a dozen times in a dozen different ways saying, we need help, things are not right, things aren't going well. And they will continue to just say, deny it. And then one day, a divorce paper signed. And this sort of reminds me of what goes on with Jesus and us. He's constantly knocking on the door saying, I'm here. Your life isn't right. You need to get this taken care of. And we continue to act like, oh no, everything will be okay. Instead of saying, you know what? Maybe Christ knocking on the door. It's time that I really open it up and I take this seriously. Um, see, the moment of greatest hope is when you recognize and you realize that you are in need. Every alcoholic, every drug addict, every any form of addict who's ever gone through a program or even has heard of somebody going through a program, what's the first step? Okay, somebody, nobody here has been through a, gr a group? <laughs> Acknowledging that I'm powerless, admitting it. Just acknowledging it. And that seems to be one of the hardest things for people to do. To acknowledge either spiritually, emotionally, that you know what, I don't have this all together. Uh, and then you look at verse 31. We see a picture of the crowd's callous indifference to the needs of these men. These men are crying out for help, and the people are are, who are following Jesus are doing their best to make sure that people don't get to Jesus. Think about that. Here's this crowd of people that are following Jesus, and here's these two guys over here screaming for mercy, and the crowd's trying to get them to shut up. Now, I just had to wonder in my own mind how many people, and this has nothing to do with any evidence in the scripture, but I wonder how many people in that group that are following Jesus had either been healed, fed, taught, had some touch with Jesus that transformed their life. And then once they got it, they said, I'm good. I don't care about anybody else. I don't care about anybody else. Because that's what they were doing. And it doesn't tell us why they tried to shut these guys up, whether they felt that the amount of grace that God could give was limited and they didn't want it to be shared with anybody else because then there might not be enough for me, or whether they were just jealous, or they become so self-absorbed, 
or they felt that these guys were so low class in society that Jesus should never spend his time worrying about them. We don't know. But what we do know is that they just tried to silence them. And so you have this amazing indifference of the crowd. And then you go to verse 32. And stopping, and just circle that word stopping. Because it's huge. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now that is an amazing prayer for every believer. That is an amazing prayer for every person. Lord, just let my eyes be open to the truth of your word. Let my eyes be open to the truth of who I am. Let my eyes be open to the areas of my life where I just need to grow in an understanding of what your love for me means. He stopped to help those two blind men. And this should remind us that if we want to be used by God, if we want to serve God, if we want to experience the fullness of God's grace, of God's love, then we must be available. I'm going to use Joe as an example. You cleared it with him, right? I cleared it with him. Yeah. Just now. Right this very minute, I cleared it with him. So, Joe is one of the most spontaneous, free-thinking, outside-of-the-box people I know. But he is a person that interruptions mean absolutely nothing to him. If he's in the midst of doing something and he sees a person with a need, he doesn't care about it about getting interrupted. Now, he may not actually get up every morning and say, Lord, let me be interrupted today. But the Lord knows that Joe can be interrupted every day. I don't know too many people like him. And for those of us who, well, not us, for others who work on schedules, um, people who are easily interrupted can sometimes be maddening. But for, to, <laughs> it's Mother's Day, I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> but to be able to celebrate the fact that a person is sensitive enough to the needs of another person that says, go ahead, go ahead and interrupt me. See, I, a lot of people say, I want to follow the steps of Jesus. I think what we really need to say is, Lord, I want to follow the stops of Jesus. Because when you take a look at all the healings of in the scripture with Jesus, almost every one of them, I'm not sure if there aren't any of them, that aren't a result of Jesus being interrupted. He's on his way doing something and somebody says, oh, go heal my servant. Oh, my, heal my dead child. He, heal this blind person. Oh, heal this lame person. And all the time Jesus is going in one direction and somebody stops him and says, I need your help. Are we willing to be interrupted by people? Um, 
Because being a servant means giving up the right to control your schedule. Giving up the right to control your schedule and allowing God to interrupt it anytime he needs to. Um, and the truth is, again, that most of Jesus' miracles were stops. Um, see, people who have an attitude like Jesus don't mind being interrupted. I can remember John Ortberg telling this true story. Um, how many have heard of Promise Keepers? Okay. Years ago, Promise Keepers was out, and I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, and it was massive. Men would go to these conferences, they would fill stadiums for three or four days learning how to be better husbands, being better men, how to be better fathers. Um, and one husband, his wife was facing an important operation. And so she was talking to him, she goes, would he be able to look after the children over the weekend while she recovered? And he goes, no, I really can't. I'm going to Promise Keepers this weekend. <laughs> now, some of you are laughing. Others say, well, what's the problem with that? <laughs> um, but you're going to a conference to learn how to be a better servant, a better husband, and right in front of them, a person says, I need your help to watch our children because I'm having this operation. And he goes, no. Now, we laugh about that, but how many of us do the similar things? We carry a sign around us that says, no interruptions. Do not disturb. Um, because we're busy doing something else. And so we see people around us all day long that are hurting, but we have the sign that says, do not disturb. Do not disturb. Also, take a look at the qualities of their requests. These men were serious. Uh, they would not be deterred, even though the crowd tried to stop them from calling out. They just cried out louder. And they didn't put it off until tomorrow. Just as a side note, this was the last time Jesus was going to go through Jericho. He's on his way to the cross. This was the last time these men would ever have a chance to talk to Jesus. This would be the last time that they would have an opportunity to encounter Christ for the purpose of healing. And so they're thinking, this, this may be our only time. Do I dare let an opportunity to encounter the Savior pass? And again, how many times do we say, tomorrow? Tomorrow I'll do that. I know I've got to get my life right with Christ. I know I've got to get my life right with my spouse. I know I need to get my life right with other people. But you know what? I'll do that tomorrow. Um, we have a coach that we talk to. Gwen and I do. And we know that on Monday we're going to be talking to the coach. And we'll sort of mess up on Friday or Saturday. And I say, that's okay, we'll start over on Monday. See, Monday is like New Year's Day for millions of people. 
Oh, we messed up on Friday. Oh, we'll, we'll get it back together on Monday. We'll wait till Monday. Um, and I think we do that. My father-in-law, one, one of my favorite sermons he preached was um, One More Night with the Frogs. And it's the story of when the plagues. And they're having the plagues, and they're going through the plagues, and finally, you know, Moses is trying to get Pharaoh to let the people go, and Pharaoh says yes, and then he goes no, and then there's a plague, and Pharaoh says, get rid of this plague, and I'll let your people go. Moses gets rid of the plague, and then he doesn't let the people go. And we go through this plague, and finally there's the plague of the frogs. And one morning, uh, Pharaoh wakes up, and there's frogs everywhere. Everywhere. And so he brings his magicians in, and to deal with that, and they get more frogs. And so finally he calls Moses in and says, get rid of these frogs. And Moses says to him, and this is just an amazing statement, he goes, when would you like me to do this? When would you like me to do this? And Pharaoh's response is even more amazing. He says, tomorrow. I'm here now. We could handle this. We could take care of this right this minute. But Pharaoh says, no, tomorrow. And so the question is, why do you want to spend one more night with the frogs? But how many times do we do the same thing? There's something that we know we have to deal with. But instead of dealing with it, we'd rather spend one more night with the frogs. You know? Uh, and I just, I've always found that as just an amazing concept. But these guys didn't put off till tomorrow what needed to be done today. Proverbs 3.28 says, Never tell your neighbors to wait until tomorrow if you can help them now. Amen. Are we going to be that kind of a people? That our eyes are so open that we're willing to be interrupted and we said, when we see a person hurting, we say, you know what? I serve a Savior who loves and cares, who can help heal those issues. And again, notice that their request was just simple. Basically, Lord, help us. And that's just a great place to start. Um, and then one last thing I'd like you to see in verses 32 and 33 Again, we see this picture of the compassion of Jesus in stark contrast to the crowds. But you also see something else in verse 32 through 34. Um, that it is only Jesus' compassion and power that can make us whole. And again, Larry Richards wrote, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem toward his trial and crucifixion. He was burdened by great crowds who did not care and by disciples who did not understand but Jesus sets aside his own burdens and needs to respond to this call for help. Jesus stopped for these individuals in the crowd, and he cared for these outcasts whom the crowd considered worthless. This is great. This is greatness. See, now we've sort of got an inkling in our own lives. Are we willing to stop and be interrupted? Um, that we don't care where a person's from. We don't care what they've experienced. We don't care where they've been. All we care about is that here's another person who needs 
a loving touch of Jesus Christ. But Jesus in his compassion just doesn't listen. How many of us want to go to a therapist, and you don't have to answer your question, um, who's just going to feel our pain, but give us no help? You know, I mean, I just go, I, I feel your pain, I feel your pain, give me $150, see you next week. If there's not going to be some kind of a solution, most of us aren't going to continue to just have somebody feel our pain. Well, Jesus just doesn't feel our pain. Not only does he feel it, he heals it. He doesn't just come alongside those to understand what they're going through. He comes alongside for the purpose of healing it. These men were blind. And think about what that meant to them. Their deepest need. They couldn't take care of themselves. They couldn't fend for their family. They couldn't go into the temple. They couldn't do anything. They were the outcasts. And Jesus just didn't come along and says, you know what, I feel for you guys. Sorry that you're hanging out at the mission. Sorry that you're hanging out at Hesed House. Sorry that life just doesn't seem fair for you. I feel your pain. Have a good day. Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to meet that need. I'm going to care for you. Um, he's going to heal us. There's no situation that we're in, there's no situation that anybody else is in that doesn't give them an opportunity to come to Christ, have Christ transform their life continue to give them guidance, continue to give them strength, and to help them find a place where they too can belong and experience the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. Which takes us to the final point, which I love. Verse 34. After all this takes place, the last line, they followed him. After everything took place, they said, you know what? That's the person I'm going to follow. That's the person I'm going to follow. We need to be a light into the world. We need to show all people, regardless of who they are, where they've come from, where they've been, what it means to have the light of Christ and to continue to show that kind of love. Uh, when we do that, that will be greatness in the kingdom having that kind of compassion. Um, as an aside to the story that it started, and I had no plan on this taking place. I mean, this is the first time I've seen Irene in what? 20 years? Yeah. 10? Okay. Well, I'm old. I don't remember. Um, but what she shared is that when... Betty opened up her heart and invited Irene to be at the table, but not only to be at the table, but in the ministry and in the community. That was a, a safe place for Irene, and through that, she came to Christ. Her life was forever changed. Jim, who was with her, just said to me, he goes, let me tell you the rest of the story. 
because her life was changed, she came into my life and my life has been changed. And all it takes is keeping our hearts and our eyes open and willing to be interrupted. And if we're not going to do that, we can never expect God to use us. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you, to learn, to grow, to experience the fullness of your love. And Lord, help us to just learn the lessons of what it means to be interrupted, what it means to be available, what it means to be compassionate and to be, remember what you have saved us from so that we could share your grace and your love with others. And Lord, that never put off until tomorrow what we can help and do today in a person's life. Again, Father, I just praise you and thank you and ask for your continued guidance and blessing upon each person here that we can go forth to be a blessing to others. Is my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said...